Hello everyone, my name is Dr. Bryn Hodgkiss and I'm here to talk to you today about the patient experience of urgent and emergency care. But those of you who follow the NHS England podcast series passionately will know this is part two. Um, in part one, we looked at the methodology we use to better understand the experiences of urgent care from the perspective of patients. So here in the NHS Transformation Directorate, we commissioned the Eastern Academic Health Science Network a consortium to conduct a, a mixed method research study. The main purpose of the project was to gather a definitive narrative of patients' experience because we wanted to better inform urgent and emergency care strategy and policy and complement ongoing urgent and emergency care digital design. Now, we look to gather both positive and negative patient experiences and then interactively explore what those experiences are in focus groups or in interviews. So this is where we get to the interesting bit. In part two, today we're going to focus on the final findings, we're going to highlight some of the key themes, and we're going to explore ways this process could influence the future design of services for the NHS. So we will start with our two panellists, one whose career has been in patient advocacy and the other whose career has been designing and running digital services for to improve people's access to urgent and emergency care. So uh, Jacob, Debbie, welcome and please do introduce yourself. Jacob. Uh, hi, Bryn. Thank you very much for uh, having us on the podcast. Um, so I'm Jacob. I'm the head of policy and research at Healthwatch England. Um, uh, we're an organisation that actually goes and speaks to patients about their experiences of services. So hoping to bring a bit of that into the chat today. Awesome. Thank you very much. Welcome. And Debbie. Morning, Bryn. Hi, I'm Debbie Floyd. I work at NHS Digital. Um, I'm um, head of um, urgent and emergency care digital services. Um, and I, that predominantly is um, 111 online, so the NHS 111 online service and the team that look after that service and maintain it for the general public. Awesome. Well, welcome. I mean, and, uh, given your careers, given your professional focus, both you know that you know, what we found in the patient experience research isn't really anything new. And there's a lot of stuff we've previously done uh, within the NHS looking at how people experience our services. So what we want to go uh, do today is draw out some of those key themes and then maybe discuss, OK, what what can we do to actually make some change or implement things for the better? So maybe the probably the best place to kick off was kind of the, the headline, some of the headline findings and the one headline finding that came out of our research. Oh, and I should say, if people are interested in the research, if anyone listening, please go onto the Eastern AHSN website. You can click through the links there. All the research results are there. So you can pause the podcast and go read it or just listen and go back then afterwards. So the, the first finding we had was around quality. So what we found, what, what, did, what made people happy and unhappy in accessing urgent and emergency care? So in summary, the research showed that a way to make people unhappy is to provide them with slow access. To make people happy, though, we need to keep them informed 
and give them effective treatment and effective emotional support. So happiness is caused by waiting, or unhappiness is caused by waiting, happiness is caused by quality. So how does that quality aspect chime with what you found in HealthWatch? The findings from this research chime exactly with what we've been hearing at HealthWatch over many, many years um, in the work that we do in A&E departments up and down the country. Um, essentially, at this point that if you want to make people happy or give them a good quality service, it's not just the speed of that service that matters. And as a system, you know, and as uh, it, whether that be you know leaders in the NHS, politicians, the media, we're obsessed with something like the four-hour target, measuring the speed at which we treat people. And yes, that does matter, but it doesn't dictate the entire experience for users. And you could be seen quickly, but still have a pretty rubbish experience of being treated in A&E and, and lose confidence in the service. So actually focusing on things like um, the keeping people informed, the compassion with which you deliver the care. Um, those things matter much, much more to people than we currently um, give credit to in how we assess performance in the NHS. Does that chime, Debbie, with some of your experiences in, in the digital space looking at quality? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot about creating services, especially, at, obviously, 111 Online is a service that is a, it's an unassisted channel. Um, so you don't have, you, you, as a user, as a patient, you're using it without any other interference. You're using it on your own. Um, and so you need to be able to create services that people trust. Um, and I think that the fundamental part of creating services that people trust is then that they will use them again. Um, and there's also something about creating expectations. So if we create an expectation that someone won't have to wait very long, or that they will see someone imminently, or they will use a service and it will direct them immediately to exactly what they need and the care that they need, we're creating the expectation too high, mm -hmm. and therefore we're never going to be able to get the trust using the service. That's really interesting, So, and we'll come back to it later, because I think there is an aspect of how the quality of somebody's experience is, is affected by the expectations we set and how we design our service. Um, so building on the points around sort of quality, we, we've also, we also found in, in the, the research that while people are unlikely to complement services when they are connected, when they feel disconnected, we, we rarely hear about it. Um, and actually, as a follow-up to the research, I would speak with some colleagues who work in the NHS about their and their own family's experiences. And um, I spoke with a colleague, and I'll, I'll call her June here, who gave the example of her parents' care. Now, um, she was telling, she said her, uh, her mum suffers from dementia, and her condition was getting worse and worse over the weekend. Her dad was starting to worry. Uh, and contacted the GP, but as it was a weekend, the GP called the out-of-hours service. They got advice from the out-of-hours service. Out-of-hours service then she sent out a nurse to them who sort of evaluated her dad. The nurse's assessment was actually, we probably need to refer them to 111. We need paramedics. Paramedics arrived, had a discussion. I think even at one point they had an out-of-hours GP come around. Um, to discuss sort of the, the dad's sort of worsening condition. And then eventually they, they took him and, and he was in, put in a, a community hospital. 
Now, when June told me that story, my first response was, and this just shows I've been indoctrinated in the ways of the NHS, was, oh, you got loads of attention. You had lots of clinicians. They all, you, you got all the clinical care you needed. I'm really sorry, what was, what was the problem? Um, and she said, well, it was, all the staff were fantastic. Everyone did their jobs, but it was just disconnected. So we had to repeat our story over and over again. And for my dad, he didn't know why these people were in his house. And for my mum, she kept having to explain some really quite distressing facts about her dad's health, about the fact that they might not want him resuscitated if he, um, uh, if he, if he would die. And that just added to distress. And it really chimes that point that we, we hit the target about time and about clinical care. But because we were disconnected, that quality aspect sort of sort of drained away. Is that something that, that comes out in, in your work, Debbie or Jacob? I think it's, it reflects a lot of what we hear from people, that actually the quality of care in A&E or urgent emergency care is very good. People still have high levels of confidence in the quality of care they're going to receive. Um, but the timeliness of the care is a problem and that journey along the way. And you get people trying to... They, I think sometimes in the NHS we have this assumption that everyone is desperate to go to A&E, that they really want to go to hospital and they really want to spend ages sat there on an uncomfortable chair uh, with no food or drink. Um, and no, no one wants to do that. So people will try all sorts of different routes to avoid going to A&E and we need to help them. But then if we don't provide joined up care between those different routes, then it ends up creating a very bad experience for everybody. And I'll share a story, like we had a piece of feedback from uh, a nurse um, who was sharing her story as a member of the public with us over Christmas. And she was experiencing um, some uncontrollable bleeding um, she didn't want to go to A&E, she thought it could be resolved by other, other means, but she was also on blood thinners and she didn't know whether she should be taking her blood thinning medication considering she was also experiencing symptoms of, of bleeding. She went, to her a she went to her GP, she called 111, she went to the pharmacist, did everything she could to try and avoid going to A&E. By the time she got to A&E, the mixed and poor advice she'd received about her medication and condition on the route meant it was more serious in A&E and she had a really rubbish experience when she was there. And at the end, she says, the staff were still brilliant. The quality of care was still great. So we have this really weird experience going on is that it's a rubbish experience, but the quality of the care and the outcome, and she could see how hard people were working, but we didn't do as enough as a system there to help have a good experience. Yeah. How does that echo your experience, Debbie? Yeah, I mean, I think absolutely. We what, what we hear back in the research we do, um, we have a team of um, user researchers within um, the one 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 online service at NHS Digital. Um, you know, we we do hear about repetition, um, and what we often get feedback, even though we provide the kind of front end online service um, that assesses patients. Um, we hear back a lot in our research about the whole system. And I think this piece about repeating your story um, does come up um, again and again. But I think we need to accept that clinicians at different parts of a patient's journey will need to hear that story from the patient or from the patient's representative. And there's part of that that we need to accept. I think what and you know, that is something that the patient will have to do and the clinician will have to hear that story. However, I think where the system falls down is that 
those clinicians involved um, or those systems involved don't necessarily trust each other that the stories that's been told in the first place mm -hmm. is actually yeah. accurate. So if there's an anecdote to match that, I actually have one from yesterday where I used um, um, the 11109 service, my daughter had a skin infection, um, and I received a call back from the 111 service actually really promptly, really polite call assessor, um, but asked me the same questions that I'd already completed online. Um, actually ended up with a different outcome because the telephony service has got access to um, GP telephone consultations, so my daughter will be taking part in one of them today. Um, but really, I probably, if the GPs trusted their telephone assessments to be available through online, I could have completed my journey online mm -hmm. and got the answer I needed. Um, so, yeah, so, so I guess what I'm saying is that repetition, I think, is probably... Um, a given, I think, for you know, any clinical assessor will want to hear that story from the patient themselves. I think what we can do to correct that is build some trust between those systems um, in the NHS so that people aren't just talking about you know, the wonderful people in the NHS, but they're actually, um, they're actually getting the, the, the care they need earlier. Yeah, you were getting a lot of nods in the room. So, Jacob. So there, are, there are a couple of things I'd add to that. I think the repetition point is a given, um, but I think we could help clinicians in that process if not just about trusting the information that comes from another part of the service, but when in that interaction with the patient saying, I see you've already spoken to 111, I can cut out 80% of the irrelevant questions that were asked of you, but I am still going to have to ask some questions again because I need to hear it in your words Absolutely. directly. Yeah. It then at least gives the impression to the patient that these people are talking to each other. They know what's going on. And the reason I'm being asked this again is because this clinician, doctor, nurse, whoever it is, is in front of me now, is interested and is using that to further my diagnosis or assessment in some way. But we don't do that. It's like we just have the standard set of questions that and if there's lots of irrelevant things in there like then it can it can feel yeah. kind of pointless to the patient and if we if we have that if if the nhs projects that trust in each other i think then the the, the patient kind of gleans that and will, will trust the system more themselves i think i do have a positive story about that so when i know <laughs> when my mother went to um a and e um a couple of months ago so she'd had a fall um, and um, she got discharged from there and was advised to go and see the doctor. And when she arrived at the doctor on Monday, they had all the notes. So they had the handover notes from the ambulance that had taken her in and the notes from the A&E department. And she was very comforted by that. And the GP did start the conversation with, I see this has happened. And it absolutely, to your point, Jacob, absolutely made the difference in her care. And really, she really felt well looked after and trusted that people had sort of acknowledged where she'd been and the journey to get there. You know, that, and it's, it's wonderful to hear that good experience. Yeah, and it also just brings to the fore, because as, as you were talking, one of the things I thought about was, you know, that the, the staff delivering care are always doing the best they can. But I'm sure for a lot of them, they're going to be dealing with lots of angry people who, who aren't angry at them, they're angry at the hoops they've had to jump through to get to where they are now, or that frustration and that repetition. Um, and so perhaps that's an area where we could 
you know, it's a, it's a huge advantage of designing the service better is because you'll have happier patients moving through it and clinicians having to soak up less sort of a negativity when they, when they actually just want to care. Also, what, what came out, and I'll bring us on to sort of what the, the second sort of large theme around, that came out from the patient experience work was raising awareness of services. Now, it came out in, in both of your stories is that um, people will often follow advice from the NHS about where to go for urgent and emergency care which just compounds their frustration when that advice doesn't get them to where they need to go. And, and also it found that incorrect or delayed information um, rarely affected people's experience. It really affected how they felt about the quality of care. Now, part of the awareness of service, as, as Debbie, you, you've already spoken very eloquently about, it's about trusting another part of the service. Um, Another aspect is about designing the services in a way that interface. So, again, and we're sharing a lot of personal experiences. And I spoke with another colleague whose whose mum has sort of multiple health difficulties. Her mum was struggling to walk, um, but then on on Christmas Day, uh, her mum started losing consciousness, passed out twice. Um, she was even struggling to stay conscious when she was sitting down. So they phoned GP out of hours and the GP out of hours service said, well, we'll, we'll give you a call back. Wasn't quite sure when, so they thought, you know what, let's just make sure, because I'm worried. Um, you know, and she had an eight-year-old son and was thinking, mm, how do I make sure my son doesn't see his grandmother in this condition? It's frightening. So then phoned 111. 111, she said, very helpful. They said, what, well, right, you need to go to an emergency department. We've booked you in at this emergency department at 4.30. And her, she had lots of family there. And her brother said, um, I've had this thing before where they say it's an appointment and it's not really an appointment. It's just an arrival time. Can you, can you ask them, is, is this actually an appointment? She asked, was told, yes, it's definitely an appointment. So they, carried, they had to physically carry her mum down a couple of flights of stairs, get her in the car, drove to ED as you're getting into the car park. They get a call back from the GP out of hours service and they go, no, don't worry, we've arrived at ED, we don't need to chat to you. Walk into ED and they get told by the ED nurse, no, we don't do booked appointments here, this is just an arrival time. <laughs> and they ended up actually eventually just loading mum back into the car, taking her back home and kind of almost hoping for the best to say, okay, I, I, I don't think she's... I think she's okay for a couple more days so we can get her seen. And, you know, the quote that stood out from the colleague was she just said, you know, it's just frustrating. Why did they tell us there was an appointment there when there wasn't one? Working within the NHS, we kind of know why. It's because of sort of various sort of disconnected elements. But Jacob, I could see you smiling ruefully at that. So uh, how does that chime? Well, the, the whole idea of being able to book yourself into urgent and emergency departments or um, out-of-hours care through 111 actually is an idea that comes from patient engagement itself. It's something the patients talk to us and we've talked to NHS England for, for many, many years about this being something that people wanted to see. And 
we know from early evaluation that Healthwatch did on the 111 first program that those who experienced it in the way it was intended really, really liked it. It was really helpful. They had a really much improved experience. That's calling 111, 111 giving you an appointment or a book to rival time, whatever, it, whatever term you want to use. Um, the thing that was better is the people spent less time waiting in the A&E than they would have done if they just rocked up straight away themselves. But the numbers of people who had a positive experience was tiny because lots of other people were experiencing it where it wasn't implemented properly. And what they got was um, one 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 booking them in. They arrived at the A&E and the A&E going, I have no idea what you're talking about. We don't do that around here. That's not how we do things. And it just destroys confidence in trying new ways of doing things in the NHS. And if you've had... Um, yeah, the, the brother in that situation, he had a bad experience beforehand. He's now had a second bad experience. I mean, we're lucky he tried it twice, let alone a third time. And if we have built that long-term distrust in these methods, then we create problems. We're never going to convince people to use A&E differently. So the moral of the story is, if you do it, implement it right and you make the experience better for people, people will go with the flow and use that new policy. If it's no better for the patient, then they'll give up and they'll just do what they've always done. And that won't help us manage A&E demand. And I think, I think one, one of the issues behind booking into A&E um, is it's, it's an initiative that came about to manage demand um, and create a steady flow of demand across a busy period um, to try and avoid overcrowding in A&Es during COVID. Um, so it's an initiative that didn't, wasn't driven from the patient engagement work or, or user demand that, that Jacob talks about. It came about, it was a decision that was made and, in, and, and rolled out to kind of avoid demand, which in some ways will benefit the patient. We can all understand that. I'm not saying it was done in complete isolation. Um, but where we found that difficult to implement within 111 online was we weren't to call it an appointment because ultimately it wasn't an appointment so we weren't to set expectations however I think just naturally as <laughs> as human beings we 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 translate that to be an appointment so in our service it's called an arrival time and we actually alert the user that this isn't an appointment um, and I think the reason that people grasp onto that is it really helps we all want to kind of schedule in it's something that we're aiming for we're heading so the disappointment that in your story and and the others obviously that have had negative experiences must feel when they then arrive thinking I got the golden ticket <laughs> I got an appointment at A&E to actually find out that no we, we don't relate to what you were told on that on that system this is something different um, yeah, I mean, that, that's again, we're back to the sort of setting the expectations high, the lack of trust that we kind of started off with. So, yeah, I think, but fundamentally, we should be, we should be building services that based on what patients want and need. And I, I can give another anecdote. Yeah, so, um, this, is, this is a personal one from my family. So, um, a relative uh, rang 111. Uh, or it might have been on one more online, I can't remember, but got a call back um, uh, about their daughter, take their daughter in to, uh, to be seen. 
and the callback came at 3 a.m. and said, "Can you, after having made the initial inquiry at about six o'clock in the af uh, in the evening, and I'm not bringing my daughter in at 3 a.m. because I can't leave the other child at home. You know, this is going to be a, it's a it's a problem for people. It's not what the patient wants in that circumstance. What they wanted was to be told, oh, we can bring the child in at 9 a.m. There's an opportunity to book in a slot." Um, and actually we don't allow any of the flexibility in the systems to really think about what's going to help the patient in their particular in that particular moment. You know, and, and it was a point that, that that was made within there also is that so by giving the patients a smoother journey, we actually are helping uh, the NHS better manage some of their demand mm -hmm. because you're not going to have somebody you know, bouncing around, finding all the different channels. You can also make some of your demand more predictable. So you will know at nine o'clock you've got a certain cohort of patients coming in because they've been booked in in advance. Um, one of the things that came out the social listening in the research was that about how people perceived the NHS. Now I found this really interesting because when I came into this role in the digital team, I sort of had in my back of my mind, if we just explain things better to the public, people will get to a happier place quicker. If we could just tell them about all the various ways you can access urgent care, urgent treatment centres, all of that. Um, but what was really interesting is when you looked at the social listening, from a patient perspective, there seems two main sources of urgent care. Um, GPs, general practice, and A&E. And while people know about 111, um, they're not always quite sure what it's, what it's there for. And what I was wondering though is, um, <laughs> do you think we should expect people to know? Or, and sh or should we rather be designing our services in a way that people are directed to where they need to be seamlessly? Um, I don't know what I don't know what your reflections are. You know, how much do people need to know, and how much do we just need to design better? Whilst there's been an increase in the use of digital channels, I do think there's still some confusion. So what we see coming back in our feedback and research is that people aren't quite sure what our service is there for. Mm -hmm. So they're being navigated to it, um, likely through Google. So we see the vast majority of people landing on our service from Google. So they're being navigated to us, but they're not quite sure what we're going to do and what we're going to help them with. Um, we've tried to help users of our service with that, where we offer kind of a navigation panel at the beginning. So we send them off to nhs.uk, which is the NHS website, for general information um, on, on conditions, for example. Whereas if they do want to symptom check, they can stay with us. That's absolutely fine. Um, so I think, it, I think it's quite... I think it, the communications and the NHS campaigns and everything we do to try and support our general public to understand the NHS better is absolutely fundamental. Um, but I do think that there's probably some work to do to navigate people to the right place um, and make that a little bit cleaner and a little bit easier. So there's a lot of different digital NHS services. There's even local services on top of the national ones. And I think that can be that can overface patients when they're trying to work out where to go. Um, you know, there's there's the NHS app, for example, which is um, sort of a lot of people have now have that on their on their phones, um, and so that that could, for example, be a good place to navigate people to. One 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 is available within the NHS app, um, so you can start honing people to kind of one place.
to make it easier for them to, to, to get where they need to. Yes, almost simplify how people would want to access anything digital within Absolutely. the NHS. And it's our problem where they go to from there. <laughs> yes. Uh, but that's fine, you know, we don't, we don't, so if you land on 111 online, we're okay with that. We can tell you to go somewhere else if you need to. Yeah, and, and what you were describing there was like actually quite a, what we need is quite a detailed and rigorous experience, um, a detailed and rigorous approach to understanding the, the patient experience when they land in a digital channel. So it, so it is smooth and seamless and doesn't feel sort of clunky or confusing. We don't have that at the moment, though. I mean, the, the, as a user of the system, the range of different digital tools on offer is incredibly confusing. And the fact that we have so much variation in the system. So I know it's not necessarily urgent emergency care, but Let's take um, trying to see your GP out of hours. You might go onto the GP website or use the app that's designated by your GP surgery, which will be different to the NHS app. And you might want to try and book in an appointment and you'll go to try and complete the e-consult form and you'll get a message that says, e-consult is now closed. And so, so I'm trying to access out of hours, but I can't actually contact my GP out of hours via the digital system that's been set up. I don't understand how does a website close? How does an app shut down? Now, we know working in the system, there are lots of very good reasons why you might, as a GP surgery, not have e-consult running throughout the night because you could accidentally still have urgent cases in there that you missed. So there are some good reasons for it, but they're not reasons that the public need to understand. We need to work better with that. And I'm probably, you know, it's then poor design of systems. I'll get uh, given the public messages like, this website is now closed, you can't see your GP. So out of hours, you can't contact us. So you go to 111, and actually 111 is a great service. It, we, we are very, um, in my conversations with a lot of clinicians and people around the sector, they can be quite down on 111 and quite, at times, derogatory about it. But from a public point of view, actually people seem to really, really like it. I mean, it's like we did some national polling on it. I think four and five people said that who used the service said they got what they needed from it. And I think that's, that's a huge, that's much more successful than other parts of the NHS right now. So, you know, it's, I think people really like 111 and we could probably harness it more to give a single point of entry to the whole NHS. But we can't just think about it as urgent care or GP access, it's the whole architecture. That, that's really interesting because what, what I've seen is some GP services who now sort of they've simplified their web page so on the front it says you know if you want to book an appointment with us click this button if you've got a really urgent need that you'd like to get assessed click that button and they go through to 111 online or if um, you know if you have the following symptoms like crushing chest pain or you're losing consciousness phone 999 and that really simplifies that interface but I was wondering, Jacob, um, do you think we also need to do more to make people within the NHS understand what other parts of the NHS do? Because you were saying there is like four out of five patients like 111, but often you speak to clinicians and they're a bit down on it. I think it's probably because uh, clinicians have a lot of experience dealing with patients who had a rubbish experience of 111. Because if 111 works well, for a lot of the minor stuff, then those people will never see the clinicians. So your sample that you experience as a doctor or nurse on the front line is all the people who turned up and annoyed at 111 because we've 
designed part of it badly. So I think we could do more to communicate actually what is it good at, what is, how is it helping people um, and be more supportive of 111 generally uh, in the NHS because I think it is doing a, um, a great job. It could be used much better. So it's access to data about services is a good one. I'll use dentistry as an example here. People are going to 111 calling about where to find an NHS dentist, often uh, with an urgent need for dental care, but NHS 111 doesn't have access to the data of where people can go. They don't know where the space is in the system. So they end up sending people to A&E, but people don't want to go to A&E, they want to go to their dentist. So actually there's some of that stuff about how we support 111 to, to be better as well. But you know that needs the whole system to have confidence in it. Yeah, and I do, well, it's always, ever since it was, um, ever since it came in, 111 has only really been a window into services that are commissioned locally. And we, we can't help the way that services are commissioned locally are, they're on a local basis, so you will get regional variation, which is sometimes perceived very negatively, like in the media, but that is that is the way that the NHS is now, you know, it's, it's a, it's a different patchwork and there's different so dentists is a, is absolute classic that you can if you phone 111 and you will be advised to do so they can only give you services that are available to them they can't magic up capacity um, or different services but they're also working off of poor information on say the nhs.uk website which doesn't know where a dental capacity really is because and that's poor so the nhs 111 is working off out-of-date information as well so it's, it's not even the capacity problem the information they have is is not good to help them provide proper navigation yeah. I think the urgent and emergency care directory services um, is updated and kept updated at a local basis and that does tend to have um, much more accurate information on the services that will be available but it's it's up to whether they're 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 given Access, 111 are given access to them, so often 111 isn't given access to, to GP services and they're front-ended by different online consultation tools that can be, there's sort of a mire of differences in them as well. Um, so there's, I, and I also think there's something about the, the, the clinicians do need to, what, wherever you are accessing um, care, if you talk to a GP in London, or you talk to a nurse in London, you may get a different opinion. So whichever person you speak to, you may get a different opinion. Now a lot of the, the, the NHS pathways that underpins the decision making within um, 111 telephony and online, and front end some A&E departments, um, you know, is unified. So if you put in the same information into that system, you will get the same outcome. So it's not going to diagnose you, but it's going to tell you where you need to go. Um, and I think there's an acknowledgement that not every clinician is going to agree with the outcome of mm -hmm. NHS pathways, just like they're not going to agree with each other if they were all sat in a room. Um, and I don't think we can overcome that. We just need to, it, need, it needs to be acknowledged. So however you front end primary care, if that is different to how 111 is front-ended, i.e. the decision-making tool that's used, you're going to get, potentially get a different outcome of what to do. Um, so, yeah, so it seems that there is a lot of work that we in the NHS need to do about sort of taking that whole system view 
and integrating parts of the system that for policy or practical reasons we've kept separate in the past. So, you know, we've often considered, as you've implied that we've considered sort of GP access is somewhat different from urgent and emergency care access. But what this is telling us is actually they are, they are one, of the, one and the same from the patient experience point of view. So we need to make it as common as we can, um, accepting that not everyone is going to ever agree all of the time, um, and nor would we want people to. No, I don't think we need to expect people to agree all the time, but we could use digital and, and 111 to harness some of the objective things in the system about. So yes, the clinician or 111 might disagree about whether someone needs to go to A&E, but 111 with the right data flows uh, in real time could tell you which A&E is the right one for me to go to right now closest to me. So that one is half an hour further away, but it's got more space and capacity than the one that's closer. So, you know, that's an objective thing. We can use data on bed capacity and current patients sat in waiting rooms to tell us that. And that could help flow patients around the system better, we could help patients make better choices. And that's not a clinical decision-making algorithm. That's just fact-based data that we're not sharing at the moment. We're not utilising as well as we should. Right, so not, not only can we make, sort of, use digital means to make the triage better, we can use digital means to make the data about how the system's working more visible to the patient. So that can then help them make a, a, a right decision for them. It's one of the consistent things that patients tell us they want to see. They don't want to know how well their hospital performs against the 95% of people seen in four hours because it's meaningless. They want to know how long are people waiting on average today in that A&E versus that A&E over there. Yeah, it's, we, yeah, yeah it's really interesting you say that because I, I, you know, I had a, a friend who made exactly that comment that, and I don't know, I, I can't quite remember which healthcare system that they lived in, but they did say they had the ability to do that. And that really affected where they went because they're like, well, actually, the closest hospital, I'll be waiting eight hours. If I drive slightly further away and a little bit off the motorway and down into that neighborhood, there's something called a, ooh, an urgent treatment center where I'll be waiting to. I'm just going to go there. Um, and, you know, that, that seems much more effective than beating people up for, you know, metaphorically, of course, for coming to the wrong place where we think, oh, actually, you should have gone somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, we, we've worked up prototypes for um, and, and tested them actually with users on, on callback times as well. So we tell people that they'll get a callback um, within a frame, um, a framework that is clinically safe, so you'll get a call back in like six hours. Or, and we we kind of worked on doing some graphs so we could actually tell people kind of what what the expectation was and when they would likely get a call back. Where it gets very complex is that people will be called back sooner if their situation is more critical, um, or if you're calling back about a child. So it's actually, it's it's very variable. Mm. So. It's almost like whilst there is that data available, it can it can change so rapidly that there's a nervousness about just saying it's the same for A and E wait times, which well, can be well, done as having, well. Having said that, there's a really valuable principle in there because as you were talking, my head was going back to the story of the, the colleague's mum, is that if they knew the GP out of hours was going to call them back within three hours, mm -hmm. 
if they get a time frame, even if their time frame is variable, if they get told that time frame, you'll get a call back within three hours. That can then manage their decision making. I also think as you lean into this more, you, it can also help. So being given a window of three hours for a callback, fine, that helps me understand it. Being given some follow-up information every so often, okay, so now the call window is four hours because we've had a stack of really urgent things that have come in. Do you, like, and being able to then say whether you think your condition is getting better or worse allows, and feeding that in digitally into the system, allows patients to help the system manage the demand. We, we need to get away from the idea that everyone thinks that their thing is super urgent and they need to be called straight away. All of our research suggests people are very understanding that more urgent cases should be seen more quickly. But the problem is, if you're sitting in a vacuum with no information, you don't know whether are they dealing with more urgent cases or has my call been lost? Right, and, and actually, so providing information along the way, it's a bit like if you're sat at home waiting for a delivery and you don't, if you can see the estimates of when it's going to arrive, it's less frustrating than being sat in all day just waiting for it to arrive. Now that's a cheap example to explain what is a real life problem. And I think we, if we lean more into this real time use of data and we, we could really harness the benefits of it. And on that, I'll bring us to sort of our, our last big theme, um, of sort of digital experience and digital acceptability. We've, we've picked up on a lot of this, but what, what's been really interesting listening to everyone is that the, you know, I know right at the beginning of COVID, one of the big discussions around digital was, you know, will this increase exclusion? And there was almost a, a sort of a, a kind of knee-jerk caution of like, oh gosh, if, if it goes online, it's lost. What's been really interesting is watching that narrative sort of change with the rise of things like, you know, the much greater use of 111 online, the much greater use of the NHS app. Um, just in society, the much greater use of video calling and Teams and WhatsApp. I mean, my parents are like WhatsApp ninjas now. Um, I, I'm wondering, you know, what, what your thoughts are is how digital could actually improve people's access to the NHS. Um, you know, is that something we've exploited to its full benefit? Are there any risks in about how we could use digital to actually get more people seen quicker? I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that there still needs to be patient choice. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I think that shifting access entirely digitally, which whilst we may want to think that doesn't happen i think in primary care in some instances it, it it does it does happen and some people do feel excluded so i do think we need to make sure that there are still the different channels available but obviously i work in digital services so i'm i'm an absolute advocate um, and i do think it can a lot of people prefer not talking to someone and this is what we sometimes forget so actually the telephony channel can can exclude people because they feel uncomfortable talking to people obviously they're, they're deaf and hard of hearing it, it, you know it can it can exclude them um, although British sign language is available but you know it can there are we can exclude people through face-to-face -face and 
telephony channels as well as we can exclude people through digital channels. So we're enhancing access for people who don't feel comfortable talking to people, who may feel confronted, who may be talking about something, not talking, but you know, digitally accessing services where um, it, they, they feel embarrassed or uncomfortable, you know, so sexual health problems. They may much prefer to actually text people about their mental health condition than they do to actually speak to someone when they're having to really front up to it and face it. So, you know, I think it's important that we embellish the NHS and make it a richer experience through digital channels, but I don't think we should make it all about transferring everybody to digital first because I don't think that's always going to work. I, I completely agree. I think um, it, the key is choice. Uh, I think what's happened with the explosion of digital tools is it's it's changed digital exclusion. It's not it's not gone away, but we often talk about some quite lazy assumptions that sort of older people won't be able to access digital tools or rural, people living in rural communities won't because they've got no broadband connection. Actually, those those lazy assumptions aren't helpful because people who live in rural communities they live further from services. So digital access is great because it's it's much more convenient. Uh, older people, bring uh, WhatsApp ninjas. I like that <laughs> phrase. So um, you know it, that's not really an assumption of like who who's got the right digital skills, capability, the, the the kit to be able to engage in the digital services. But we have seen digital exclusion change. So. Uh, I mean, Debbie, you mentioned uh, deaf service users. We still see examples in primary care of uh, practices saying you have to phone to make an appointment. You can't come to the practice desk to make an appointment, and the online system is is not accepting bookings for appointments. So actually, you've got deaf service users who can't use the phone to book an appointment, being forced down a route. There's no choice for them. So we are excluding people there. Um, we're also increasingly excluding people on cost grounds. So it's not we're in a rising cost of living uh, pressures all over the place. People are thinking about this a lot more. Recent research we've done shows that one in uh, one in 10 people are now avoiding uh, booking an NHS appointment uh, or attending, uh, avoiding booking an NHS appointment because of the cost. So the cost to make a phone call, the cost because of broadband. We're getting examples of people spending 45 pound in phone credit trying to get through to their GP. And you know, the, 19% of the British public are still on pay-as-you-go mobile phone contracts. So we, as policymakers, we, we, at our peril, we make some assumptions that oh, people have got open-ended contracts and just easy access this stuff. So, you know, I think that's where digital exclusions have changed. Choice helps and as being aware of actually some of the cost barriers are probably a new thing for us to consider. Yeah, and I do think actually the point, the word, the word assumption is one I wanted to get to and it is, it's, it's so dangerous in when we're designing services that we assume anything. Um, so we can create um, something in, 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 in a digital service and we can assume that it's best. So we can assume that creating um, appointment booking is, is the best way to deal with demand in A&E. But until we test that and we get the feedback on it and we design our services around that feedback, we're not, it's, it's not gonna work. So, you know, I, I think something we want we need to talk about is designing services around the user needs and how we go about that and you know we go about that by creating something and either piloting it or we would say researching it so putting it out to user research so we we create a prototype we design something then we we test it 
with our users, either in a, in a laboratory environment or, or over teams. And we get them to use the service and feed back to us whether they can navigate their way through the service, whether they understand the terminology that we're using, um, whether it makes sense to them, whether it's something that they would use. And even though digital services may be seen to be more accessible to some people and make it easier to access, you know, they, we have to, we've, we've done some recent testing on people that use screen readers, for example, so people with accessibility challenges to digital, um, and making sure, that's why our services and kind of the government service manual for digital services tends to be incredibly simplistic, um, and it looks very clean and quite plain, because the more images you put in, the more data people have to pay to download it, and the more complex it is for something like a screen reader to navigate, um, which means you're excluding all those people. So that, that's why our service often looks quite plain um, and uninteresting and factual, because it makes it much more accessible to, to the general public. And that, that whole sort of, the, the whole approach of user-centered design is, you know, it felt very refreshing coming into a digital team to know like there are people doing this. I mean, did, Jacob, is that an approach, you know, we see more widely in the NHS or is it something that we need to encourage more? I mean, it varies. It does get used as an approach in some areas. Some it's more um, genuine than others. Sometimes it can still feel a little bit uh, like a tick box exercise of I've, I've engaged patients. I was actually, whenever, and I've been doing patient engagement work for about a decade now, wherever I've seen it done well, it's led to the, the service that's delivered being much better in the end because it tackles real-world problems um, that users have rather than the problems we as designers assume that people are going to have. So, um, I mean, it's fantastic to hear it happening in the 111 digital space. It is a, a concept that we should adopt much more widely across the NHS. And it's something that patients and the public are happy to give their feedback about. Healthwatch hears from two million people a year um, telling us what it's like to experience services. I just wish we, you know, we had a more consistent space to land some of that some, at yeah. times. And I don't think it should be. I think there's been some really great initiatives to get patient groups. Um, set up locally but you know I mean my, my bugbear with that is you, you end up being a professional patient you know all of us that work in the NHS are professional patients that so we've got a level of understanding and once you've been on a patient group for some time and you've been inputting into um, to, to NHS services you end up being a somewhat expert patient you kind of know um, what what services are available and you know how to, as we say, navigate the system. Um, so, you know, what, what we prefer to do is we either do pop-up research um, or we recruit people through agencies um, and, and tend to gift them and reward them for, for their feedback. Um, but pop-up research in, in, you know, in public libraries, which is free, people are very willing and, you know, you get them to use an iPad and work their way through the services. But so in, di in the digital space, so in NHS Digital, is, it's, it's an adopted way of developing a service because we're generally developing unassisted channels where someone is using them on their own. Whereas, and I do think service design in the wider NHS, um, we tend to use methods that have been around for a long time um, and, and designs and flows and processes. Um, and I don't think we, 
we put them out to the general public to find out what they think of them or what they would do, you know, would, if they were told to do this, what would they actually do? If they received this letter through, would they read it? You know, how many, is, it, is the font too small? Is it, we don't do that. We do it for digital channels quite naturally. Um, but I think it should be adopted wider, as Jenkins mm. says. We do sometimes do it badly. So we've, as a system, we've adopted things like behavioural insights, ideas about uh, letters reminding people they should attend their appointments and things. And actually, behavioural insights is really interesting. It's really fascinating if you test the different kind of routes and the outcomes you can get. But often it gets interpreted as just send patients a letter saying it costs 150 quid every time you don't turn up to a GP appointment. And so we lo lose in translation the idea of why you involve people in research and why you test them. So, Well, and just that point of GP letters reminds me of, you know, or letters, sorry, not GP letters, letters from the NHS, reminds me of a conversation I had with a blind patient. And she said, um, every time I get a letter from the NHS, I feel less than human. She said, I, I've got to wait for a member of my family to come home so they can read about personal health, my personal health condition. Um, she, said, oh, she said, I've got a blind friend who waited three weeks to find out whether she had cancer. She had the letter. She knew it was a cancer test, but she, didn't, she wasn't due to see family for that period of time or someone she trusted enough. So, you know, that, that idea that actually we should encourage more feedback from users yeah. would lead us to think about our services in a very different way. But there are also digital solutions to that because if we had better data on our patients about their needs uh, for communications recorded across and shared across the NHS, then we could make sure that we were always sending letters in the right format to those people. Whereas what you see at the moment is a patient you have to record at the GP surgery that you have a particular communication need. So they'll send you letters in Braille or, you know, large font or whatever it might be. Um, but then the cancer screening program will keep sending you reminders in, in a normal format, you know. That, so actually it makes you, again, this, the NHS feels like a, like a, a big beast of a system that's not very human, not very compassionate, doesn't really know me as the individual. I think what digital's got, digital's got real potential is it can actually improve the relationship between individuals and the NHS as a whole. It can feel like the NHS remembers who I am. Yeah, that, that really is a fascinating insight because that then, you know, mentally it moves the idea from digital being this niche thing that the techies work on to actually it is, it is the web through which everything is connected and personalised. Um, and actually, in, sort of even in how we perceive the NHS, is can move that perception away from the idea of it just being a big old hospital to the idea that actually with digital services, it's something you've got on your phone. You know, I think 60% 60, 60 of adults in the UK still have the NHS app on their phone. 30% of people use 111. So it's, you know, the NHS is something that's very immediate. It's in your front room if you're using more digital channels. So as, as we come towards the end of the podcast, um, you know, one of the things that's come out really powerfully in, in the discussion and in the research is how designing services around users is sort of not just valuable, it's increasingly indispensable. So my last question to our panelists is, uh, Debbie, how can we expand that mindset beyond some traditional digital channels? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think you researching how services should be designed should be um, 
we should learn from how, how digital colleagues do that and I think we should expand that, absolutely. But you can design something at the outset and, and patients and the general public can feedback um, how they think that that will work and they can give their opinions and you can design the services around that. But until you actually go to the other side of that, when, when that has actually been in place and people have used it in real life, you need to be gathering the feedback at the end and using that feedback to make the services better. So let's not just put a service in place and leave it. We have to hear about how it's working. So, you know, there's a, it's brilliant that we provide callbacks from 111 telephony, um, but we've already, I think Jacob already talked about someone getting a callback at three o'clock in the morning. You know, I have, I have a lot of stories of that happening and people going out of signal and, and staying in a, in a signal area because they're waiting for a callback until like 11 o'clock at night with a poorly child. So, is that working? Of course it's working, but we need to nuance that probably and tweak it so that it works even better. And that's about listening to how services are going, how patients are experiencing them, and, and actually tweaking them so that they, they can become better. Perfect. Taking that, that feedback point a bit further, so obviously it's great to do it and essential for design of a particular service and following up to see if is it achieving the outcome that we wanted it to, are there any unintended consequences, all that sort of stuff. But let's remember the NHS is gathering mountains of feedback continually all the time. So I mentioned earlier Health Watches gathers about two million people's experiences a year. Uh, NHS.uk uh, gets 100,000 free text comments or something a year on its website. Friends and family test, something in the region of five million qualitative comments left via that that are just stuck inside individual providers. Um, we've got all, you know, all of this stuff, um, NHS complaints data. We need to combine all the feedback together and make it more than the sum of its parts so we can, we can scan across what are the problems that go beyond the individual service. So whilst you might be asking specific feedback about one woman telephony, it's great, but actually there's probably a whole bunch of things around it that were also a problems. And so making the collective use of all of the feedback can help us identify what those wider system problems are. And so that with me is, uh, is the, the main message, how can we make the most of all the feedback we're hearing? Yeah, and, and then building on that for the final point is sort of, and then taking collective responsibility instead of segmenting that, oh, that's a primary care problem, that's a, an urgent and emergency care problem, or that's a someone else problem, we all, as a collective in the NHS, then, then address that and design our service in a, in a better way. Thank you both. It has been great fun chatting to you today. And just a reminder that if anyone wants to see the full uh, research uh, that we did, do have a look on the Eastern AHSN website. Um, of course, if you want to find uh, this or any other podcasts, just have a look for NHS England uh, podcast series on SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much.